welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're going to feature Anthony Wilson. Well, I saw it through the skylight. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Good morning, gents. John Story, Will Brom, Perry Smith. Here we are, episode number nine of the High Action Podcast. How are you guys doing out there, Perry? What's up in New York this morning? Things are all right, man. It's a rainy day. Uh, I've got a gig tonight, so that's always exciting. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, happy to get into this uh, episode of the podcast with you guys. Anthony Wilson, man, one of our favorites. Mm. I know, right. Will, did you say that, that, and I guess the listeners will hear this too, how you met Anthony? Yeah, I don't remember when I first met him, but I it was more like I heard him play a bunch of times and was in awe and then at some point finally got to to rap with him a little bit but i've seen him play countless times yeah yeah it's a great interview you know we got to really go deep with him about his background like we've been doing with all of our guests here on high action um we should just take a moment here to thank everybody thus far who's subscribed to the podcast with it, being that this is episode nine we're, we're doing pretty well we're chugging along we're getting some new followers and you know subscribing really means a lot to us because it shows us that you guys are interested in all of this content that we're putting out, but it's been a fun learning experience. Perry, what's one of the things that you've learned the most about producing a podcast thus far? Oh, about producing a podcast. Well, certainly our logic skills, our editing skills, (laughs) our production skills uh, have greatly improved, which I think is a huge benefit of this. Yeah. But just, I think um, the insight that we gain from really digesting each podcast I've been talking to some of my students who listen to the podcast and they'll reference like, oh, this episode was so-and-so. It was really cool to hear him talk about that. Or um, it was really cool to hear Mimi Fox talk about that Joe Pass story. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of neat. I think we all uh, get to experience um, just a lot of education through listening to this. And it's not just the three of us, it's, it's the listeners and it's the people who are subscribing. Yeah, totally. And I, I don't know, I mean, Will, do you feel like you've been inspired also musically when we get done interviewing some of these people just to pick up the guitar and kind of get into playing? Cause I sure have for sure. Yeah. I feel like these interviews where we're speaking and not playing or not listening to them play is, is a deeper form of communication. That's 100% relevant to the music part. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it deepens our connection and our communication in the music and outside of it. So I, yeah. I absolutely think that, yeah. It's just really made me want to go back and check out some records I haven't listened to in a while. So many of our guests were guys that I got familiar with now. I mean, it's hard to imagine you guys, but been really deeply involved in jazz now for over 20 years. I've been listening to so many of these guys. It's it's crazy how time flies. And, and Anthony did such a great job of just kind of laying it out for us about his process. And there were some things that really surprised me about his background and, you know, with his dad, the great Gerald Wilson, who, as we know, arranged uh, for Wes Montgomery and, and you know, was an amazing big band writer. And, um, you know, Anthony having this pedigree of coming from such deep roots in jazz 
and then talking to us about you know what he was like as a teenager and then going to college and and so on and so forth so without further ado let's go ahead and dig right into today's episode with the great anthony wilson here on high action Anthony, thanks for joining us here on on the High Action Podcast, man. It's just it's such an honor to have you. Especially, I feel like we have a, I mean, with I guess with even with Will too, we got a lot of history, man. It's just great to take the time. So we appreciate you. Absolutely, being here. same here. I'm, I'm so, I love the name of the podcast. I mean, I don't always like High Action, but <laughs> but I like the I like the the idea of it. <laughs> well, you know, save that because that's going to be a great talking point today because as you can imagine, all of our guests get to a- ask and answer that question about, you know, wh- where is your action right now? Okay. So it's okay. Sort of our, it's sort of our thumb, thumb mark. When I thought about this interview today, I was thinking about everything over the years, man, that we've talked about from when I got to, I was lucky enough to get to study with you in 2005, and then we've worked together on a variety of projects. And it was almost one of those things where I, I just wanted to dive right into a few things. With your sound, I hear so much Kenny and Grant and mm. like that era of hard bop player from like, especially, man, like your sound, like the 58 to 61 Kenny Burrell years, Grant Green 61 to 64. When you were a teenager, Sco and Matheny were really in vogue, Mike Stern, all those guys. Were you trying to kind of imitate more of the guys that like your dad would have known and imitate the guys from the fifties and sixties, or were you imitating a lot of the modern players around that time? Well, you know, I mean, I started being serious about guitar in terms of moving toward jazz when I was about 13 or 14 and I'm born in 1968. So we're looking at around 1982, 1983, as the moment that I became super interested in in learning more about jazz. In previous years, even though I had, had started playing guitar, mostly with the thought of being able to sing songs of the day, you know, and of my favorite bands and learning guitar with that being my focus. And I had, of course, listened to some jazz just because both my father and my mother my father being a jazz musician and my mother being a huge jazz fan. It was in it was in my environment, but I got serious in the 80s and there wasn't really much that you could access. It's not like this, the CD era wasn't even happening. I came later to a lot of the, the so-called modern players and whatever that really evokes. Like, I mean, actually in senior year, of high school was when I discovered John Schofield. I didn't know about John Schofield until 1986 or so when I was at my friend Will Baum's house and he had a guitar player magazine and I opened the guitar player magazine and there was one of those little floppy um, records and it had the title song from Still Warm on it. And we put it on at Will's place and I was like, man, this is amazing. You know, it was like, what is this? 
And I immediately went out and got still warm. By then, like CDs were, well, that's not quite true because I feel like I, like one of the first CDs I got around like 1985 or 84 was Miles Davis decoy. So Schofield is there in a beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Really fluent and, and uh, incredibly present and eloquent. There's one super slow blues that he just slays, slays it. So these are moments, but maybe like with certain players other than really Pat Metheny, who's so famous and he's on Joni Mitchell records at the same time. And and he was so popular in a sense. And my mom bought as falls, Wichita. So falls, Wichita falls and off ramp. And, but I didn't really have a super awareness of like kind of the broad base or, or the broad panorama of modern jazz guitar. What I had were Wes Montgomery albums, Johnny Smith albums, Kenny Burrell albums, I think my mom had some George Benson. I mean, and of course, I listened. Breezen came out when I was a little kid. So, you know, I wore Breezen out. I mean, I still have my first LP copy and it's completely, you know, it's like not usable. And all of this is to say that my initial reference for jazz guitar came from a very limited number of recordings that I really had. Or if a teacher would turn me on to something or somebody. So, you know, it, Joe Pass, Wes Montgomery, Kenny Burrell, Herb Ellis, Django Reinhardt, George Benson. These, this is kind of the foundational area of, uh, of where I picked up an approach to jazz guitar. And, and of course, it just stays, it stays so close with you. I even came to Grant Green a little bit later, more like college era when I first met Peter Bernstein um, in New York you know he encouraged me to really listen to Grant Green and uh, and I did and and got it I was like this is the greatest stuff yeah. ever but there were so many other people obviously playing during those years but I came to them later when people would talk about John McLaughlin for instance yeah Mahavishnu like I just had no reference like I didn't have the records and I wasn't super interested and it wasn't like you could just needle drop or Spotify drop or or just immediately start to kind of pick and choose from from right. the whole world of guitar. Totally. It's really cool man to hear you talk about getting exposed to the music through the records. Were you studying with Ted Green at this time too? No, no, no. I mean, I really during high school years I didn't do much private study at all. In ninth grade, I went to the jazz program at at Isomata in Idlewild. And there was a really great, wonderful teacher there named uh, Paula Rose. And I loved Paul. And uh, he taught me a lot of things. And I took some private instruction with him. But for for us, uh, the lessons were a little expensive. And so couldn't really afford those. But I did take a few lessons with him. He lived over on on 6th Street, right by La Jolla or Sweetser in that, that area, in an old Spanish duplex. And I don't know if your, your audience will know about him, but he, he passed away uh, super early. Uh, I don't know what kind of cancer he had, but I believe it was something 
quite rare and serious. And, and I don't think he made it to 50, but he was a lovely person. He played this beautiful cherry red ES-335 and he was, he was beautifully uh, fluent, great improviser, really, really knew the fretboard. And so there, there were certain things that, that he taught me in some of those just first lessons that I still carry with me. And then also in our neighborhood was a place called Geisler Music, a little music store, mom and pop music store. Uh, and there was a guy, there were two guys who taught uh, at Geisler's. There was uh, a guy named Elliot Kleinberg mm -hmm. who taught me uh, a lot of my kind of rock stuff and pop stuff. And then there was a guy named David Wood, who my father knew from, uh, from Northridge, from Cal State Northridge, um, who said, he said, this guy, you know, he knows some jazz, he'll help you. So like David Wood was the first guy to teach me, you know, like systematic four part chord inversions and my modes and, and just sort of uh, position playing some, right. some good basics. But really, I didn't have extensive private study during the years of high school. My dad was also able to get me into some classes at uh, Dick Grove School because he was a lecturer there. So Dick Grove just made a deal that like my dad didn't have to pay. We didn't have to pay. So I took some improvisation classes with Dick Grove, some sight reading classes with Dick Grove, some harmony with Dick Grove, improvisation classes with this guy named Russ Tuttle. Okay. who was amazing, but I don't really don't know what happened to Russ Tuttle, but I really loved him. I'd like to know more about him and what where he came from and what he did. He was super cool. So anyway, those were some formative experiences for me. Paul LaRose has been mentioned in every interview we've done so far, actually, because Paul, as we know, co-founded the USC guitar program with Duke Miller in the 80s. And so we owe, Perry and I, especially as being SC alums, we owe a lot to Paul um, yeah. as being one of the guys that really got, say, a camp of teachers from GIT over to USC, which is a private university, a formal school. Of course, USC was yeah. establishing itself as a major, major player in music schools. And to have a contemporary music division with guys like Joe DiOrio, um, yes. you know, is, is, is really awesome. So it's, it's fun that you mentioned Paul and that you got to study with him. Just kind of moving on here, too, from that point. You, so you went to Bennington College in Vermont. <laughs> Right. I did. And and when you went into Bennington, they're really known for like a kind of an interesting method of composition and stuff. So when you went there, did you feel like you had a lot of questions because you hadn't had form a lot of formal study besides with your dad and these guys um, where you were trying to like learn how to compose? Because I, I'm so curious about your development at this time as a composer, in addition to being a de your development as a guitar player. You know? Yeah, for me, the, these two things have always been on kind of parallel tracks, playing the guitar and and writing music. Uh, I've always been interested in, in both things. And during high school, I did quite a few music programs where I was studying composition, theory, and I felt like I went to Tanglewood, for instance, one, one summer during high school. I did those Idlewild workshops. I did these Dick Grove classes. I had also been in a, in a boys' choir for a number of years before my voice changed, and we studied, we studied harmony and theory so that when it came time to go to college, I wasn't certain that I wanted to go to, like, a music conservatory. I thought 
I might be just with musicians. And I was so interested in, in many different things that I, I mostly applied to liberal arts colleges, although I applied to Oberlin, which, which appealed to me because it was both a music conservatory and a liberal arts college, both of great pedigree, you know. Um, but Bennington had something, I applied to it, I actually found out about it a little bit late, and uh, there, were, there was a very interesting composition program there that was not so music theory-based or so fundamentals-based. So, like, Bennington was funny because, like, a freshman in college who'd never studied music and knew nothing about music could become a composition major at Bennington, which would not be the usual track. Like, right. if you didn't really know how to read and you didn't know, you know, basic harmony, like, how are you going to compose? But Bennington's mm -hmm. thought was, okay, we'll do a first-year kind of survey for those for those students, and then we'll just get them into finding their voice. And, you know, so it's this kind of, this kind of philosophy. But there were some really great composers uh, teaching there, a guy named uh, Lionel Novak, a, a teacher named uh, Louis Calabro, Vivian Fine, and a person who became my mentor was a wonderful musician uh, named Alan Sean. So, so there was that section of the music department there. And there, were, there was also what was called the Black Music Department, which had been founded by Bill Dixon, the great trumpet player, composer, and kind of spear, one of the spearheads of, of avant-garde jazz in, jazz in the 60s, um, who'd worked with the Jazz Composers Guild, et cetera, et cetera. He, he uh, created this thing called the October Revolution in jazz in the 60s. So he's a really interesting character, and he had amazingly interesting approaches to composition, performance, improvisation. So right. he was there, as well as uh, the percussionist drummer Milford Graves, who had played with Albert Eiler, uh, Gary Peacock, the New York uh, Art Quartet. So they were there, and they were kind of ensconced in the music department as well. So there was improvisation, performance, and composition, that were outside of a kind of one-track mind about jazz mm -hmm. that I found appealing. So that's why that's why I went to Bennington, and you could you could in over the four years design right. your program to to fit your interest uh, and your goals. So it really worked well for me. While you were in Vermont, did you go down to New York much during that time? You said you met Pete Bernstein around this time too. Went to New York all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, I have a cousin who lived in New York, and so I always had a place that I could stay. Um, as well, uh, there was something at Bennington called the fieldwork term, which is basically Bennington's way of not having to pay heating bills during the winter for the whole student body and all the <laughs> classroom, which is crazy because because Bennington was known as the most expensive college in the, in the States at the time, but they still like, that was really, at least that's what everybody says. That was the rationale for getting all the students off campus during the winter months. And so uh, I spent, I think three of those. So it was January and February 
uh, you know, you go off for the holidays and then January and February was this field work term and you'd find a job in in an area of interest uh, and then, or you'd do a, maybe something related to your, to your studies and then you'd report back and you'd have a supervisor or the person who hired you for the job would kind of evaluate your work. So I went, I think, three of the years to New York. So I spent winters in New York and went to, I mean, I've got an old journal here from, from that time. I mean, it, it would say like, you know, went to Bradley's tonight and saw Chris Anderson, Billy Higgins and Ray Drummond. And then, you know, went and saw Spear at the Village Vanguard. And, you know, so like, that's what we did. We went to, my friends and I were all super into jazz. And so we went to Bradley's and, and the Vanguard and Fat Tuesdays and Sweet Basil, you know, <laughs> right. where you could hear jazz. Did you take any lessons like with Jim Hall when you were in the city or anything like that? That would have been amazing, but I never did. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I met, so I met Peter, like probably my very last year of, of Bennington, that's when I started going to Smalls. And so that's where I first saw Larry Goldings and, and Peter and, and Bill Stewart's. Um, I had actually met Joel Fromm and Brad Meldow through my friend, Brett, Bill Dobrow, who went to Hall High School in West Hartford, Connecticut with them. And they were sort of best friends. So we were all kind of milling around in in New York around that time, I'd say 89, 90, 91, 92, 93. Interesting time to be in New York, for sure, because yeah. it's such a renaissance then of bebop players and guys like, I guess, Mark Whitfield a little bit maybe, and, and Peter, sure. of course, Peter. Um, yeah, and New York still still uh, at that time with, with its funk factor <laughs> in full effect. I mean, you know, um, which was crazy, but, but beautiful. And, and before, you know, uh, neighborhoods were changed. I mean, I just always loved that feeling of New York. And I mean, as record lovers, and when we see pictures of our favorite musicians in the New York of that time, it's, it's, it's kind of beautiful. I mean, I had also become really, I had been very, very interested in the music of Benny Wallace when I was uh, just out of high school uh, and into college. So I had sought him out too as a kind of a contact, a person to be uh, seeking out, right. learning the music of. Um, I love his records on Enja from that time, from the 80s, mm-hmm. and, then the, and then the Blue Note records on, in, the, in the early 90s. Um, so, so yeah, I'd love to see like pictures of Benny Wallace and Chick Corea and Danny Richmond and and uh, Eddie Gomez on like a stoop on the Lower East Side. You know, <laughs> to me, that's still like an image that I have of like my my romanticization and nostalgia about New York. Yeah, did you mo- actually move to New York when you graduated college, or did you come right back to LA? I did. I moved back to back. I moved to New York after after college. Mm-hmm. How well, long were you out there for? About 94, 95. And then I came back home to L.A. Just curious if you could talk a little bit about some of those projects because you collaborated again. Like you must have known Joe Bag and the Ferbers and those guys for, for a while, right? Especially Mark and Alan or? Well, I came back to Los Angeles. Actually, I had I had spent 
the better part of a year touring, playing on a, in a band with a with a French singer named Vanessa Paradis, who's like a, mm-hmm. uh, she eventually married Johnny Depp. She's a she's like a huge French celebrity, beautiful woman. She was like the Chanel model, mm-hmm. and she made a number of albums. One of her albums has the songs of Serge Gainsbourg on it. Uh, she made an album with Lenny Kravitz. I coordinated with her through Lenny Kravitz because he was put, I'd known him for years and he was putting together a touring band for her mm-hmm. around 94. So I went out on tour with her and I'd given up my apartment because I just thought, oh, I'm going to be gone for so long. I was not able to sublet the place that I lived because I was already subletting from somebody. So I did all this touring with her and it was great fun. And we, we played, you know, it was really a rock pop gig. And I came back to New York and I was kind of bumming around and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to stay there. And I had some friends uh, here in LA who said, well, why don't you come to LA for a while? Let's start a band together. So I thought, okay, I'll come to L.A. It was no problem. I didn't have really much stuff that I had to move or anything. So I went to L.A. and uh, started playing with my friends Eric and Brett, and we started a band, which was really, you know, like a rock band. And uh, we wrote songs together. And that sort of lasted for a couple of years, and, and we were trying to get a record deal, and not that much was happening. And... Uh, but in the same time, people would call me for jazz gigs, and I was working with my father's orchestra, and I was listening to a lot of different music that that I loved, and I, I was I worked a lot with uh, with the guy named Joey Altruda, who was part of this wonderful kind of L.A. lounge music scene, and he had a, a band called Jump with Joey that played ska and Cuban music and. Right, And so we'd get together and we'd listen to bebop and we'd listen to kind of jump blues and beautiful records from the 40s and 50s, black artists with horn sections, kind of urban, beautiful, swinging music. And, and I became really fascinated with that music as well as the other music that I loved, things like Gil Evans, uh, things like Jerry Mulligan concert, jazz band, uh, Marty Page. Uh, was a was a composer who I was into, composer arranger that I was into, mm-hmm. and I I thought well, this might be a really fun and interest musically compelling format to kind of put myself in. I love to arrange for horns. I love to play around a horn section or with a horn section, and so. I decided almost arbitrarily to start a nonet that had five horns. And I started just writing charts for that. You know, I'd, I'd pick up on something, a Freddie King recording that I liked, or I'd take a, an original song that I'd written and expand the arrangement mm-hmm. or this band that had baritone sax, tenor sax, alto sax, trumpet and trombone and rhythm section. And, uh, I became just really fascinated with with that format and and that practice of writing. Uh, And this would take you to around 97. I had some opportunities to make some demos 
uh, for a small record label that was that my father was affiliated with, which was called the Mama Foundation Record Label. And they let me go in and do some demos and they liked what they heard. And so they brought me in to do three. I ended up doing three albums with them. And those were immensely fun experiences. I mean, with a really incredible array of musicians on the first album, for example, Brad Meldow is the piano player. Willie Jones is the drummer. uh, Danton Bowler. So these are, you know, people that I knew and loved. Brad was living in L.A. at that time in the late 90s. So that was super cool. Pete Chris Lieb was on that album. I did another album with the same with the same format of group in New York, though, with Joe Temperley on baritone sax, John Durth on trumpet and Ted Nash and Jerry Dodgen, Art Barron. So I just love to find musicians with beautiful voices that that had that kind of that kind of love of older music and and modern approaches and and tried to start really for me those those that period is like me getting my shit together you know really trying to learn how to write uh on really trying to learn how to arrange uh i hear a lot of things on those records that if i would do them now i'd certainly do them differently but i was i was young and i was just trying to get it together and i had a lot of support uh from really wonderful musicians so and the third record around that time so 99 2000 I got to know Alan Ferber, Mark Ferber, and Joe Bag, as you had asked. So, like, Mark Ferber is on my third album uh, for Mama Foundation, which is called Adult Themes. And, yeah, it's just a, a super cool time. And that's when I think I've, I found that, like, oh, I really want to do my own thing, whatever yeah. that is. Like, right. Right. And it's, as, as I think you know, it's it's morphed and changed and broadened over the years. Right. And, you know, just again, with the format of our podcast today, I know Perry and Will have some questions in particular this, from this point on, I wanted to take a moment because this is really a good spot to share with some of the people listening on the podcast about what was going on around this time. This is when I got familiar with you, Anthony, because I, I was around this time. I was a sophomore, junior in high school in Portland studying with Dan Balmer. He was telling me about some of the guys in LA and some of the guys in New York to check out. Your name had been, mentioned and I heard live in Paris when it came out and I heard this solo that you took we're going to play a little bit of it right here off of love being I love being here with you okay I was my I mean it just blew the socks off my feet when I heard it man I was like this is a cat that I need to meet and listen and and take a lesson from this guy so let's take a listen to this okay this is from live in Paris 2001 right Mm Thank you. 
it's just out of sight. And man, props yeah, to man. props yeah. to John Clayton and, and Jeff Hamilton too. I mean, man, so swinging. So at this time, you were playing with a super. Diana had blown up, and Russell had played in there, and Dan Family, a couple other guys before you, and she was pop stardom at that point in jazz. So how did you start to balance playing with a superstar road gig like that? And then also continuing to write your own music? <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure I even really thought of, of balancing anything. I mean, I was, uh, the way that that all happened was quite sudden and, and fast. Uh, I had been working in with John Clayton and Jeff Hamilton in their, in their orchestra become quite close with them. And, and uh, Diana had come to do a show at the Hollywood Bowl for which uh, John Clayton was the musical director in which the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra was the, the house orchestra during those summer jazz seasons for several years. So she came and and I had, I had known her really since the beginning. I mean, I remember first meeting Russell and her at, at the old local 47, probably around 1996 or 97, uh, at a benefit for John Collins that we all went to. And these old benefits were unbelievable. If a, if a musician was sick or, or needed help with, with bills, they, they would have these, yeah. they would have these tributes. And, and so there was one for John Collins who was not doing well. And, and Russell played, uh, Diana played, Clayton Hamilton played, Teddy Edwards, uh, uh, Jimmy Smith and Paul Humphrey, I remember. Anyway, yeah. that's just a tributary. But just to say that, like, I had met her and she, at this particular Hollywood Bowl gig, she said, you know, I, I may have some things coming up that that I'd be interested in you playing for. Would you be interested? And, and I said, well, of course, you know, uh, certainly. And the very next day at Hollywood Bowl, Diana's manager, Steve, came up to me and said, you know, Diana asked if you'd come, if you'd be interested in coming to do a live record with her in a couple of months in Paris. <laughs> and I said, yeah, of course I would. And so, so we did that and that was kind of one thing. And then there was a bit of a lag time and I was doing my own thing. I was also teaching at UCLA at that time. I mean, I was really trying to kind of cobble together a life in music, whatever that meant teaching uh, gigs with my own group, playing with Clayton Hamilton, just as much as I could kind of get together. Uh, so, and I wasn't on the road at all really before, before that period. So I'd say several months after we recorded in Paris, Diana called me and I didn't even think that record was out by that point yet. And she's, she said, you know, um, I, I'd love it if, if you and if you, if you come on tour with me, I've asked John and Jeff if they'd come on tour with me and, uh, and I'd love it if you would. And so that was the first period. And, you know, she was hitting it hard. I mean, Diana, during the period of like 2002 to 2000. 14 really mm -hmm. it's like on it. I mean, and so there were some years, so it just, it sort of snowballed. So I didn't right. think of balancing anything. I, I just had a lot of energy and I was uh, young and super psyched and had a lot of adrenaline from being 
brought on the road and, and moving. So when I come home, I just still had a lot of energy and I wanted to do things, um, as much as I could. And, uh, yep. uh, so for me, it's all just part of one practice of, of making music. I was just glad to be out playing every night. Hey, Anthony, how are you? I'm so good. How are you, Perry? Good to see you. I'm doing great. It's been such a pleasure to sit here and listen to you talk about your life and coming up uh, in L.A. I didn't know about the Vermont, the Bennington thing. Uh, that's really neat. And I, I know you had New York experience as well. But, um, yeah, I do have some questions, but I just also want to uh, give you some much, much deserved praise. Uh, oh, I, so you're going to have to sit through it. Um, okay. We're all big fans of your playing. Um, I'll speak for myself just saying that uh, I think like a lot of guitar players, I kind of first heard about you through Diana Krall's uh, gig and that those performances. But then having moved from the Bay Area down to L.A. to study at SC, I was starting to know some musicians, guys like uh, Matt Zebley and Matt Otto that played with you Ferber. And they were kind of hipping me to your, your non-net stuff, which I love. It's just awesome. Power Nine is a really great, great record. Mm -hmm. And I really love that stuff of yours. But where I'm kind of going with this is uh, seeing you develop your career over the years, whether it's the stuff you've done with uh, Seasons or the new stuff with uh, Frogtown or Songs mm -hmm. and Photographs. Uh, it sets a really great example for guys of my generation and younger guys because too often, I think we've been told that if you want to be great at jazz, you have to just really focus on only that, you know, uh -huh. and and even within the different styles of jazz, sometimes people say, oh, well, just focus on playing this way or play modern or play traditional. And, and I think you really kind of break open that notion. Um, and you've brought so many wonderful influences uh, into your music and uh, it hasn't you know, hindered your ability to play jazz. You get a great sound out of that instrument, um, beautiful tones, swinging so hard. And <laughs> it's just a it's just a great example. I want to just let you know that in case you haven't heard that enough from people. Um, but it thank you. Man. I appreciate yeah, it's, it's it's really nice to kind of see that, see somebody's career uh expanding in this way, um, hmm. who can play straight ahead so well. <laughs> yeah, I mean I do well you know, internally is if I, when I know and I feel that there's nothing that I, that I couldn't do. Like if I'm, if I'm interested in making music in a, a certain way or that appeals to me or, I mean, I just, as a listener to music, I'm, I listen to, so many different forms of, of music. And I feel like I've, I've so benefited from, you know, the really wide availability of recordings that we have now so that, so that I'm always just looking down different avenues and, and uh, it never felt, it would, it would feel very confining. In other words, if I felt like there's a way that one is supposed to be in music, you know, like, this is how you're supposed to do it. You, you stay on that track, you do it. I mean, I think that works for certain people, or maybe it worked at a certain time, or maybe mm -hmm. some people didn't even think about it that way. Mm -hmm. They just was the way it was, and maybe there, there wasn't as a, much awareness of, of how you could get to the goal 
by taking many different routes. And, and, uh, but I just love the idea that like nothing is really off limits in terms of making art. I mean, we're artists, we, we make art. Right. And, uh, so, so the idea that don't go there, don't go there, stay, stay here, really concentrate. I love that idea. I mean, the other day I posted, uh, on, on Facebook, uh, uh, article about a guy in Pasadena who has an Italian grocery store and he makes these sandwiches. Yes. And, uh, and my caption for the article was, you know, do one thing and do it well. Like I totally understand doing one thing and doing it well, but maybe the one thing is a bit broader, you know? So to be able to acknowledge that each of us is going to have to find that for ourselves and then to define what that one thing is and then, and then make it. And, and that's, that's worked well for me, you know? It's really, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. The music you're producing now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, is really interesting um, to me, uh, in addition to the stuff you were doing earlier on, but um, yeah, Frogtown and, and, and songs and photographs. I was recently listening to some of that stuff and uh, reading some of the press releases you had on it. And I wanted just to dive in a little deeper on this aspect that I read, which is that maybe you reached a point with jazz or like traditional jazz that maybe wasn't satisfying something within you. And uh, kind of just trying to talk about that, because I, I know you have this broad sense of your artistry. Um, and I'm just curious what what more you needed, you know, and what wasn't working for you. Sure, sure. To be real clear about it, or to try to find a way to really articulate that. As a listener and as a player, sometimes the experience of listening or playing jazz, I can find it very frustrating. Mm. I can find uh, the the experience of listening to a lot of soloing to be kind of frustrating. And that's something that I came to later, although I think even as a younger person, even in my teens, I think the kind of performances that I, that I loved the most in jazz, the kind of soloing that I loved the most in jazz, the kind of recordings that I loved in, the most in jazz, had a real sense of kind of narrative or moving moving from the beginning to the middle to the end in a satisfying way. It brought me to the idea of, of songwriting as a, as a conduit to creating a kind of a satisfying narrative in, in, in composing. I'm looking to kind of craft narratives or a sense of story or a sense of unfolding uh, that, um, that songwriting started to become a really viable way for me to find that. And then it, it eventually uh, influenced even the way that I approach performing instrumental music. And maybe I'd been doing it all along. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There's a sensibility that I'm trying, I've been trying over the last number of years to, to get in touch with this sense of, of a real unfolding narrative in, in the music that I make. Uh, a great influence for me in that would be for instrumental music would be Bill Frizzell. I think mm -hmm. he really embodies that. Uh, 
in terms of, you know, to, to bring somebody who does it on guitar as well as composition. Yeah. I think Bill is, is just exemplary. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. The, the way he uses his ideas, the way he uses fragments to create larger compositions. And I've talked with him about this and, and it's, you know, one thing he'll say is like, well, you just got to keep, you know, you just got to keep writing ideas and then, you know, you can put them together and like, maybe yeah. it's a scrap from here. I love his uh, little string quartet that he has with Avin Kang and uh, Hank Roberts and Jenny Scheinman. Mm -hmm. And we talked a lot about how he'd use just very small fragments to then create a larger piece woven from these things. But something about the concentration of the ideas then creates something that carries forth the composition in a really satisfying way as a listener. So these are things that I'm always listening to folk music, country music, hymns, old, you know, I love field recordings. I love, I love what happens when things get a little more concentrated. So, um, it's a really beautiful landscape. Um, that you've been creating on on these last couple albums I'm familiar with. I, I also hear some Rykuter influence in there as well mm -hmm. and combined with the Frizzell influence, but you're you're putting forth your own compositional style in there, your own way of playing in there, uh, getting a beautiful sound out of the out of the telly and the other instruments as well. Um, so I just want to tell you I'm a, I'm a big fan of everything you're doing and uh, it's it's just something that I really admire as well that you've been able to just create such a great vibe on the arch top and the hollow body, uh, you know, undeniably swinging. And then you can step outside of that and expand your artistry. I just think it's a great yeah. of, uh, Thank you. example to set for modern jazz guitar players, you know? So. Thank you. For, yeah. And I mean, I, I just, yeah, I don't think I can overstate that enough for me. It's all, it is really all one one thing. I mean, exactly. The idea of swing and the idea of, of rhythm and the idea of, of the way you place your place, what you're playing mm -hmm. within the groove and within the within the foundation of the music that that just goes across everything that I love. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, I'm glad that it that it all feels of a, of a piece to you as a listener, because that's Absolutely. what I'm trying to do. You know, can I ask us just a specific question about sound, about getting the sound, especially um, on the box. We've yeah. all dealt, dealt a lot with just trying to get a good sound out of a hollow body and uh, um, something, especially part of new West. A lot of the music we're doing is just three hollow bodies up there. And yeah, you know, what has your journey been like a little bit with, um, just really trying to approach a hollow body guitar and archtop guitar and trying to get a sound out of it that you really identify with. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about your approach there? Maybe specifically where you pick, maybe your action, sure, um, just sure. setups, some, some things like that. Yeah. I mean, I've basically in my life, I've played two archtop guitars uh, that I've owned. I'm, I have a 1958, Gibson Birdland right. with PAFs, which actually uh, Bill Frizzell asked me the other day if I still play it. And I was like, yes, I do. I love that. <laughs> um, Don't touch it. <laughs> it's an absolutely stunning, beautiful instrument and the pickups are great. And then uh, 
I have a John Monteleon archtop right. that was built for me by him around 2004. Mm-hmm. So those are the two instruments that, that I have come up on. I had a 175 when I, you know, when I was first getting in, not a great 175, uh, uh, it was like a 1980s 175 with a Charlie Christian pickup and the okay. and the volute at the end of the okay it, and and it and it hummed and it, it but it was great. I mean I, I started to learn to learn guitar on that right. and I also borrowed for a for a period of time an ES 345 from a friend of mine Dave Sockel in New York who collects guitars but okay. the two guitars the Birdland. And the Monteleone have been my real, you know, bread and butter mm-hmm. uh, as far as playing jazz guitar. And they, they're very similar and they're very different. I mean, dealing with the Birdland, you have a short scale mm-hmm. to, to navigate and a, quite a narrow neck. Um, I actually, I heard at one point that Ted Green had told somebody, if he keeps playing that Birdland, it's going to ruin his hands. <laughs> <laughs> a, a person that I know who's a guitar teacher who took some lessons with her, uh, with him, and uh, and he told her when it when it came up that, that they knew me in common. He said this, you know, if he keeps playing that Birdland, it's going to ruin his hands, which is hilarious. And uh, <laughs> by then, I was also I was also playing the bird uh, the uh, the Monteleone as well. Anyway. Um, for me, uh, it's always been about some kind of consistency and not playing too hard. Um, consistency in my left hand uh, and intentionality with how I'm moving. It's hard to really articulate uh, a sense of sustain. So a sense of really pressing with my left hand with the fingers of my left hand but not hard but you know a sense of a sense of legato that is expressed here the way you move a, sen- a sense almost of hanging on every note that you played when you move to the next note is something that really I, and to me, that's all kind of embodied in this idea of, of sustain and legato, even when you're not playing in a legato, legato fashion. I mean, when we think about the trump, trumpet players and saxophone players that we love so much, I mean, Lester Young, Charlie Parker, um, Clifford Brown, uh, uh, think about... I mean, there are many people who create a more kind of staccato or, or more clipped style but i think we can say that that really something that goes through creating a beautiful sound is a is a sense of connection between the notes a sense that yeah. they're as one ends the other is starting sure. not that 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 you know you get no swing from that 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 you get swing from da you know and uh so that was something that, like my dad always said, you, you, it needs to sound legato. It needs to sound smooth. Um, and so I think left hand, I've worked on that, and I think I also work on it uh, with my right hand in a sense of of picking and a flowing 
easy way. If things get too hard or too aggressive, then that sense of lightness or fleetness or, or connectedness tends to go away. So yeah. I'm always looking for, for that. Um, so, so it's like a beautiful way of articulating. Sometimes that, that's how I think of it, like articulating with the left hand as well. So you, you said something about being really deliberate with your left mm-hmm. hand, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's just an incredible lesson for anyone who's listening to kind of cue into if you haven't really been trying to deliberately articulate with your left hand and the legato connection in your right hand. Um, now, in regards to your right hand, I, I love that you pick a little closer to the fingerboard. You can get kind of like a warmer, throatier tone. You can dig in a little bit more on the guitar, but yeah. that also presents some challenges when you're a little bit forward too. You, you know, like you can sometimes have too big of a sound if you're playing like loud through an amp. So I'm wondering in Ooh. some of the bigger venues you played in, did you feel like you had to adjust your sound just because volume wasn't wasn't uh, on your side or the hard the, the the thing that usually comes up for me is if I'm if I'm picking right here, which is where sometimes I'd like click the pickup, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'm clicking the pickup a lot with the pick, right. but uh, um, for me, it's just about listening to the variation of tone possible. You know, but yeah, I'm usually about there, not to, so there's nothing. You know, and and I think about what happens if it's downstrokes. You know, mostly I have a kind of a alternate. Style and but sometimes for kind of emphasis, downstrokes really work for me. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. love listening to people or watching people who use a lot of downstroke yeah. picking, yeah. such as Russell. Russell. You know, it's, yeah. it's really interesting. Or Bucky, people who yeah. you know really dedicated a lot to that movement, which mm-hmm. for me it, it needs to be more of a rolling thing. But uh, yeah. I guess we all just find our way and. Uh, but for me, it's like a lightness, uh, a sense of a kind of rocking, and and a sense of not pushing too hard. Mm-hmm. For me, well, all the players that I love the most, it's just they don't seem to push. They just seem to they just seem seem to bring the sound out of the instrument, whatever that instrument is. Yeah, and this is this is reminding me as I was asking the question about kind of just dealing with the volume challenges that you can have sometimes with the box. Um, when we did that gig where New West opened for Diana and you, you were yeah. playing, uh, I think in Southern Oregon, I was so blown away by how quickly you guys were able to sound check, but also <laughs> how the stage level, the volume on stage was was pretty qu- quiet in a sense. Yeah. And I don't even know if, if I'm remembering this correctly, because this was like 2009, I think, mm-hmm. uh, or 10. Um, you, Diana didn't have any monitor. Like, she, does, she, does she have her piano going through the monitor, or were you guys just balancing to her piano acoustically on stage? No, I mean, we all would have one, one wedge. With her. But yeah. I usually don't 
Like on mine, I know that mostly it's her voice. Yeah. Because I'm pretty, where I sit, I'm quite close to the piano. So just, yeah. sometimes it's just very, very little piano and nothing else other than her voice because she sings quite softly. Mm-hmm. Right, um, right, right, right. Um, I think she may use a little, she might have a little guitar in her monitor. Uh, the bass is right there and we're all so close, you know, so we're not playing super loud and there's not a lot of level coming off those monitors. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really cool to hear. Um, I'm going to pass this over to Will for a second. Okay. Anthony, hey, man, we've, we've only gotten to like hang and passing a couple times. I was oh, at yeah. your Frogtown CD release show and kind of before before we get into any any of that, I, I got to say, I love that you brought up Decoy with Snowfield because <laughs> like, yeah. man, I immediately yeah. feel so comfortable just chatting with you because that album is so killing and Schofield's like, I, I'm right there with you, man. Like, it's yeah. I love that you like just honed in on that. That's a good album. So good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so kind of stemming off from what Perry was bringing up, um, I really love how even sometimes like on sometimes you'll live stream and you'll be playing this beautiful stream of conscious improvisation that's very spacious and open chord oriented and pure sounding. So I wanted to just ask you a little bit about that and, and again, like acknowledge your connection to music beyond a jazz idiom and also just listening and creating sounds mm-hmm. not necessarily rooted in vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love, you know, seeing seeing all the little all the little things that you you put out that like your sound, especially utilizing the sustain and the sound of the electric guitar. And maybe just ask you, like, what are some electric axes that you love? I've seen you with, a, I think, a Gold Top Les Paul. Yes. Yeah, Gold Top Les Paul with the uh, the Les Paul Deluxe with the little mini humbuckers. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah I became quite enamored of, of Telecasters over the last seven or eight years. Yeah. I, I got just like a Fender reissue, like American reissue. Really nice one, though. Uh and uh, I love that guitar. A Tysco, mm. old Tysco with weird pickups, Japanese guitar that I actually like on uh, Frogtown, I use that guitar mm-hmm. uh, for the song Geranium. And it's great. And I have flat wounds on that. And, and uh, huh. it just sounds great. And I have a, a, a guitar that's almost Strat like, Strat esque um, from this company called Kappa, which was. A 60s company from Maryland, and I kind of cooter-castered that one. I um, changed out the pickups. I put an old Harmony pickup on it, and 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 a kind of a lap steel pickup on it. And and I love playing that. I love the possibility for different sound that different instruments give, mm-hmm. different acoustic instruments. I have a beautiful old 1920s Martin O18. Mm. which is pristine and beautiful and small and the epitome for me of like a beautiful parlor guitar. But at the same time, I like sort of crude instruments that might even sound a little clunky or flatter, but have beautiful, beautiful bass response. Like uh, Patrick Warren, a keyboard player that I love. He has this beautiful Epiphone dreadnought that uh, Mm. it's just, it's like, it's one of these guitars that you play and it, it takes you to its own 
own space. And I think every, every instrument that we can play, if we listen to them closely enough, they take us to the, the place that, that they might want us to go or that unlock, have a key to unlock something inside yeah. us. And I mean, you mentioned this idea about vocabulary. And I mean, I, I think we're always striving to expand our vocabulary, meaning the words and phrases that we can use to, to make coherent statements. Mm-hmm. But the statement is really where we want to live, not inside the vocabulary, right? I mean, not by placing a word into the statement so that it will show that we have the vocabulary to make a statement. It's about finding ways to bring that out for me personally. Um, And guitars, just sitting with a guitar can really, um, can really help to to unlock that uh, for me. So yeah, some of these little live hangs that I've done, it's just also, I mean, this past several months have been just intense, like emotionally for me, intense, uh, a lot of, a lot of stress um, and feelings like by the end of the day, like, oh man, I need to like, almost more fatigued than the old. Yeah. And really need to breathe it out. And so those moments have been important for me rather than like, uh, okay, let me play certain specific songs that I'm working on. Maybe just have a chance to kind of commune with the instrument with, with the sense of, of making music. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I had a moment after one of those. Do you do you guys know a guitarist named Harrison Whitford? I don't. You guys familiar with him? He's really wonderful. He's one of my favorite people. I've gotten to know him a bit over the last couple of years. Um, but he plays with. He's a really fine player and songwriter in his own right. Uh, with a wonderful, with a wonderful communicative tenor voice. And he also plays guitar with Phoebe Bridgers, mm-hmm. the songwriter Phoebe Bridgers, who is mm-hmm. also wonderful. But anyway, uh, Harrison and I talked quite a bit. And after one of those, a couple days after, he said, you know, what you were doing the other night reminded me of this. And he sent me a, a picture of a record cover. And he had no idea that I had this study relationship years earlier with Bill Dixon, but he sent me a Bill Dixon <laughs> record. And I was like, that's amazing that you're telling me right. that something in what I was doing evoked somebody that I studied with years ago. Like to me, that was like, that's a real so connection. Cool yeah. because, because the lessons that I learned from Bill about pure improvisation, about absolutely cutting off the part of you that, that thinks and analyzes while you're improvising mm-hmm. is so huge for me. And uh, so I just thought that was, that was awesome. You're, you're saying in a sense, the same thing, getting to a kind of a pure, less mediated place, at least less, hopefully sure. unmediated by thought, vocabulary, by trying or trying to do this within a, a song, but just how am I improvising? How can I be here with the music? I, I, 
I'm glad that it's in some way communicated with you. It absolutely is. And actually, you you brought up since you brought up album covers and covers and artwork in general, which you are you know very active in. And and like one of the cool things about your Instagram is your wonderful photography. But even just your album covers, like looking at your discography, I love how unique. And it's very apparent how carefully thought out and um, like that the album covers are. Um, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. I think us being a guitar trio interviewing you, who's written for, you know, the guitar quartet that John was involved in, the Seasons Quartet. First yeah. of all, amazing writing, amazing album, um, kind you. of stemming off like a lot of original content and, and really your own voice. I know John wanted to play a little bit of that, but wanted to just comp compliment you on that project, which is such a cool sound and so relevant to us as a guitar ensemble, too. You probably listened to some Ginga at some point, right? For sure. Malga for sure. Malgani Quartet? Absolutely. Well, it was John Pisano that first turned me on to Ginga. Yeah. To, to Ginga. He gave me uh, the Leila Pinheiro album called Cata Vento e Girasol, which became super influential for me. And yeah. And then, yes, Malgani, I love yeah absolutely here we are you know we're a guitar ensemble you've written for guitar ensemble we all know our pain i love how, <laughs> I, but i love how like there is just reckless abandon in that writing man you just are like going for it and writing in such a modern high energy way um when you wrote that had some of that music kind of crossed your mind before for the nonette and then you were adapting it to the guitar quartet, or was it totally from the ground up because with John Monteleone, your relationship with him and the sound of your radio flyer, how beautiful that guitar sounds. And um, yeah. I wrote Seasons based on going to John Monteleone's shop over a number of visits and trying out the, uh, the Seasons instruments as he was finishing them. So um, I would just sit off to the side of his shop. He's got a, an office and he would just open up the, the cases and I would sit and I would sketch out ideas as they would come to me. But so it's all really guitar based material. It was, it was all generated for me by what I heard the guitars doing when I would play them. So it's, so it's intimately related to how the guitars sounded. There's a part a large part of the writing that happened away from the instruments, obviously, because I was home and, uh, and in fact, actually did a lot of writing without trying things on instruments. So sometimes if I had a theme, 
and I knew where it was going, then I would elaborate it compositionally uh, without going and testing these things l- until later. And then I'd see, okay, think, do I think that's going to work? But, but I was is. thinking of the guitar as a kind of a choir and, uh, and then just also seeing how to kind of swap roles, accompaniment, comping, mm-hmm. uh, soloing, improv- improvising, uh, lead voices, inner voices. Right. Point, well, you know, and, and I know Perry had, it looks like had a question about this too, but just to real quick, just to add on to that, when we rehearsed that music for the Broad concert with um, Julian and, and Larry in 2014, can't believe that was that long ago now. Um, and then you did the tour afterwards, you went to Fretboard Journal and whatnot. I remember rehearsing with you and we talked a lot about groove as a guitar ensemble and how groove like as you played your seasons pieces more you started realizing like man we like the groove all of us even on the ballads and how spacious the melodies were on winter and summer and that's something that we've strived for really hard with new west too um you know and i'm sure perry wanted to add two to this but i was just also curious you were saying you wanted to write some a tribute to monk with guitar ensemble is that something that's still on deck for you a little bit it's it's on deck in in the sense that I don't want to let the guitar quartet uh, go. I want I want to I want to to continue evolving in that with that ensemble. And yeah, I'd written a couple of monk arrangements, and I I think that, that would be beautiful. Or 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 maybe just something song based. Um, also, I think maybe with different originals from the different people in the in the band. Um, but yes. Yeah, so, yeah, exploring a lot of different approaches to music through through guitar quartet. I mean, we don't have a drummer. We don't have a bass. You know, you know, <laughs> the pulse gets rendered in a much different way when you're several guitars at once playing. And it's something that it's a challenge to kind of get get through. And it, what I notice is that it can it can sometimes feel it can feel kind of populated. You know, there's a lot of, I wonder in a guitar ensemble, what we can do to kind of expand and open the sound. I mean, it's, it's one thing when you're dealing with the sound with three, (laughs) with three guitars or four guitars that all have the same exact register. So I know you guys sometimes are working with a baritone guitar, um, different, different things like that, which, but if you're, it's just four, six string guitars, it can tend to be populated all in the same, basically just the same register, you know, or a couple of registers and how, how to solve those problems as well and groove and pulse and a sense of weight to the sound. And I guess it's just, it's up to us who are, are interested in the format to find ways to to do that, I sure do love hearing, of course, Malgani or or the LA Guitar Quartet or different ensembles that I've heard that that give it a go because it's it's quite challenging. Well, I think uh, just to chime in here, really? I think that there needs to be more people kind of you know setting a little bit of an example of the format for guitar ensemble. Um, that's one of yeah. the things that. You know, we've been sort of shocked by at least outside of the classical realm, 
there's just not that many guitar ensembles that we could look to and be like, oh, okay, well, that's how these guys did it, or that's how these guys did it, you know? Yeah. Um, a lot of that exists in the classical world, but in the world of jazz, improvis- improvisation, uh, whatever you want to call it, there's just not a ton of examples. And so it's really cool to hear what you're doing with it. I, I certainly hope you continue it. Uh, those guitars have a really cool sound, you know? Yeah, they do. And then, I mean, of course, it's when you're on your own instruments, then uh, and when when you bring different voices into playing the same music, you learn about it. So mm-hmm. for me, it's it's something that I need to definitely get back to. And 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 <laughs> I mean, I've definitely I've written a couple of Monk arrangements, a couple of Carla Blay things, a couple of my own uh, original tunes, one of Julian Lodge's tunes. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely expanded the book of what's possible in our group. And, and maybe it's just a matter of once all of this is over, getting everybody together again and, and, uh, and recording or doing some shows and, right. and, and then recording and seeing, seeing where we could take it. Well, we if you go. ever want three guys to play through some stuff, uh, we'll, we'll do it. I would love that. Because I'd love to play it's such a guys. great lineage. It's such a funny story. I mean, I actually joked about it back then. I was like, we should do a seasons quartet, new West guitar group. But, um, but man, I mean, just to kind of wind things down today, it's been an epic, epic interview, man. And again, you know, here on the high action podcast, it's really about featuring all these great guitarists who are our heroes because you're really one of our heroes, man. And, um, again, like Perry said, really setting an example for thinking about what we do as musicians, as, as the field is wide and go for many things. And, and you have such excellence to everything you do from your singing to your straight ahead playing because you swing your ass off. So for those who are listening to where, where can people go check out your music? Of course, your website and following you on Instagram and Facebook is the best way these days. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm, I'm active on Instagram simply because I love the format of an image-based platform. I'm I'm super into uh, making pictures. uh, And I find that I find it always refreshing uh, to to put up pictures. But if if there are gigs, when there are gigs, if there ever are gigs again, you know, I definitely announce gigs there. And I've done, as, as Will was saying, some live streams, which I kind of dropped off. But I would like to do a little bit more of that, just of an evening, turn down the lights, light some candles and sit and play. I have some projects that I'm, I'm working on. One is a, a songwriting and photography project that is inspired by the Mississippi Delta and, and journeys that I've taken there since about 2016. So that's something that I'm just about to get into recording and then it'll take some kind of form. So I have a website, anthonywilsonmusic.com. I announce things there. I'm not super active on Facebook, but I've got, you know, I'm there. Cool. And uh, I tweet a little bit. I, I love Twitter f- for finding amazing articles or YouTubes or interesting things to study, actually. So yeah. I'm like a big, I'm not a huge content creator on Twitter, but I'm a big retweeter <laughs> you know um so yeah i use all these things in a way to kind of stay connected what pick is in your hand anthony because i've oh. been seeing it and we gotta know you know, this yeah, is I, don't know what the, uh, I forget what the, oh. the number of these is 
But this is, is what Fender. I, yes. Yeah, this is a Fender. Nice. Um, and these are what number is that, John? Do you know Fender, the catalog? Fender five fifty one. It's the extra large teardrop. Yes, and they keep bringing them back and then not making them and then bringing them back and exactly. then not making them. Yeah. And I mean, so my story with with this shape is that um, very early on, um, I fell in love with the Gibson black teardrop, same shape as this. Mm-hmm. And I loved them. And that's what I always had heavy. Uh, and then th- that got discontinued and it was impossible to find this shape. And then Fender had them and then, yeah, they go away and they come back. Yeah. So you buy a bunch, yeah. but I, I really like it. Uh, I always love this. I love Love it. Well, we had to ask, you know, I mean, it, it, man, that's a, it's a, <laughs> I think you gave us a perfect idea for our YouTube thumbnail, Anthony. It's just going to be a picture of you, a picture of the Fender 551, and then high action podcast episode with Anthony Wilson. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of high action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash Group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.